Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike. This week's episode is with our guest, Clem Basto. Clem is a screenwriter, an autism advocate, and a cultural critic who has written for The Saturday Paper and The Guardian, and her new book, Late Bloomer, presents a collection of essays that speaks to her experience as a woman who was diagnosed as autistic later in life. We recorded this a number of weeks ago, and this is uh, a great chat, one of my favourites for the year. Go and check out Clem and uh, her writing and her book, of course. If you would like to support Willosophy, you can support us at patreon.com slash Willosophy. For as little as a dollar a month, you get the episodes a day early, so you get a Sunday morning episode of Willosophy, as well as ad-free episodes for your support. You can help us pay people like James Fosdyke, who does all the amazing artwork on this show, which you can see on our Instagram page, instagram.com slash Pod. And if you want to hear more from the TOEFOP network, you can go to TOEFOP dot com to see all of our shows including tofop fofop and two guys one cup and afl adjacent podcasts will and charlie will also be doing the tofop podcast live on stage at the great australian podcast festival on the 6th of november of this year you can get tickets in the link that i will put in the description of this podcast go and see tofop live at the palais theater for the first time in i think four years uh we would love to see you there But for now, I will pass it over to this week's episode with Will Anderson and Clem Basto. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Well, Will, I'm Clem Basto. I'm a writer, I'm a researcher and I'm hashtag actually autistic. So let's jump in at the end then. We'll start with the end. Get it out of the way. Or no, I'm not, I don't mean get it out of the way, but I mean it is like the topic of your new book. You've written a book. It's called uh, Late Bloomer, How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life. And um, uh, it's a, a story of your life, uh, but also about this diagnosis that you had with autism. So let's like talk about that a little bit at the top. It gives, I think, everything else a good framework for the conversation we're going to have. At what age did you get your autism diagnosis? So I was 36. I um, I started the screening process a couple of months before my 36th birthday and um, it had been building for a, for a while. I um, was always aware that there was many things about me that were quite different to those around me, some of them, you know, quite catastrophically, other ones just kind of bubbling away in the background. And um, I'd been working on a screenplay and we sort of kept getting the same feedback about the characters. It was like, it's very funny, you know, it's structured really well. We're really enjoying, you know, all the gags and stuff, but we just don't know what's going on with the lead character. Like, what's her problem? And every time we'd get into these meetings, I would just have this white knuckle grip thinking, I don't know, because I don't know, you know, what my problem is either. And then so through that writing process, I kind of we ended up settling on this idea that perhaps this lead character was herself autistic and then in reading about that it was kind of like I'd written myself to a diagnosis I I suddenly went hang on a minute you know and it had been something that we'd sort of joked offhand about in the family before and you know there's a bunch of people in my family both officially and unofficially who are autistic so I remember texting a friend and I said look do you think and she who is herself on the spectrum and I said uh you know I'm starting to think about 
maybe, do you think I could possibly be autistic? And she said, yeah, we've had our suspicions. <laughs> so it set this ball rolling and um, I was just really lucky at the time that a friend of mine had a, a younger daughter who was being diagnosed as well. So she recommended a, um, a clinic that could, could look into it. And um, it was a really interesting process because there was a there was a long gap between the, you know, assessment interview and then the results or, you know, possibly lack thereof, which was my fear at the time. Um, so I really had a long time to think about it in between those two appointments. And so when I went in and they said, congratulations, it's autism, it was a big relief. Because um, I guess at that point, you know, I sort of thought, if it isn't this, I don't know what it is. You know, um, there, there's something wrong, not wrong, but, you know, there's something fundamentally about me, which is affecting my, my kind of ability to be in the world. So yeah, it was a big, it was a big wake up call. And it was clear to you that this was different to the general sense of unease that everybody has being a human being, because I think that there is, I mean, there'd be lots of people listening going, well, I don't feel in either. And I don't feel like, you know, from day to day, sometimes I feel uncomfortable in situations, but this is not just the general unease of being a human being, is it? This was something that was much deeper than that. Yeah, it was very profound. I think by the time I was 36, you know, I always think about that moment in the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror where the where the house kind of collapses in on itself and disappears. I'd kind of gotten to that point. So I had gone from being, you know, a child who was um, very obviously different. You know, I, I had what were at the time considered to be big tantrums, which, you know, I now know to be meltdowns. There were lots of issues, uh, sensory issues, social issues. You know, I had a lot of problems um, with speech. There were a couple of years where I repeated everything I said um, immediately after I said it. And I knew that most of my kind of personality and, and my kind of Rolodex of, of, you know, anecdotes and turns of phrase were all lifted from films, TV shows, other people. So I had this real sense of a kind of almost like a kind of hollowness at my center where I was like, I don't know who I am, you know, and um, I'd had a couple of what at the time I could only understand as nervous breakdowns where I'd just completely hit rock bottom. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of a, a, a make or break thing, I guess, to, to find that insight because I think at, at that, by 36, I was sort of really starting to worry that I didn't know what, you know, um, what the rest of my life would look like. You know, I, I knew that I, I couldn't work in an office. Like I'd had all of these issues in employment, in education, um, where things just didn't seem to work and I didn't know why. So, yeah, I think I think it is a, it's a common thing that when people, particularly people who are late diagnosed, they have often done a really good job at getting through and kind of trying to fit in and pretend to be, you know, a so-called normal person in the world. Um so then the, the sort of horrible irony of that is that when you go and you're told you're autistic, everybody goes, oh, but not really, you know, you're, you're pretty, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, must be yeah. pretty mild. And, and you know, yeah. so the, the, the ironic thing is that we've sort of done what all of these therapies want, which is to turn ourselves into so-called, you know, functioning members of society, but at, at a huge cost, you know, huge psychic and often physical cost as well. You know, you're just rinsed. Well, because there's been no su support structure around it either, I imagine. So this, I guess mm. it, it comes at the end of the book, but it's something I'd like to ask here because we've na naturally got to it, which is your thoughts on being diagnosed late in life versus if you know, for example, when you were, you know, a kid and you were having one of these meltdowns or that you were repeating these words that you had been diagnosed there, like has your mind wandered to like how your life might be different and whether, 
you know, I mean, often the result you end up with is the one that you decide this is probably the best way around it. But do you feel like, hey, I wish that at age five somebody had identified this or are you glad in a way that you had some of your life without that? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I think, you know, the the question that a lot of people always have, particularly when their kids are looking to be diagnosed, is that they'll be labelled, you know, and, and kids can be cruel and school was shit house, you know, school was a nightmare. And so I don't know if it would have been more or less of a nightmare if I had an official reason to be bullied um, and outcast. Right. But I think, yeah, I'm proud of what I kind of put together, but I do think of um, the challenges that I've had in my life, I do wonder whether some of those would have been different or perhaps non-existent if I'd, if I'd had that understanding about my kind of place in the world, you know. I um, just things like trying to go to uni and, and sort of not not understanding why I couldn't seem to like I dropped out of uni three times uh, before I went back and did my master's and I felt so stupid you know because I just couldn't make it work and I didn't know why and so you do eventually start to think I must just be an idiot you know I must just be not not smart enough to do this um, and it was it was you know a similar story with with work you know I, I I work mostly from home because I can kind of control the environment there so when I tried to get so-called you know real jobs um, I would end up feeling absolutely wrecked. I didn't know why. And, and so then, you know, society says, oh, you're just a bit of a bludger. You know, you can't, you can't cut it in the real world. You can't um, cope with the fast-paced world of publishing. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, there were, yeah, there were lots of things like that. You know, I think, I think to uh, the, the sort of, you know, worst things that have happened to me, which are typically kind of interpersonal things, I think that's where it really would have made a difference. I think I maybe would have been more aware of being you know, in some ways quite naive and vulnerable um, to, to, to poor treatment at the hands of others. Obviously you can't, you know, there's no real insurance plan against that. But, yeah, I think I think that would have helped. And I think too, you know, talking to like in the book, I, I really wanted to make sure I did this sort of extra chapter where I I spoke to other autistic people because I, I think, you know, one of the problems is when you talk about your experience as an autistic person, because it is such a diverse range of experiences, you often get this response, which is, oh, but that's just your experience, you know, and and my friend's sister's son is, you know, not like that. So I I kind of wanted to highlight a bit of, you know, other people's experience. And, And part of that was feeling quite this, this bittersweet feeling when I spoke to, you know, younger autistic people who knew, who knew that they were autistic from a young age. And, and I think, that definitely seemed to help them foster a sense of pride in their difference rather than, you know, confusion or shame. Um, so, yeah, I think for those of us who kind of have slipped through the cracks, there there is a lot of shame around it. And there's, there's um, I think, this kind of quite complex thing that, that I, I, I definitely have had and I've, I've spoken to other late diagnosed people where you almost feel like a part of your authentic self is kind of gone forever, you know, because you've, mm-hmm. you've had to work so hard to squash it down. That there's a part of me that's now like, I don't even know if I can have a meltdown. <laughs> like it seems like such a funny thing to value, but, you know, those authentic ways that my brain and my body are meant to kind of um, uh, react to the world, you know, have been so... Um, uh, so kind of marginalised by life that, yeah, that is, that is a, it's a bittersweet thing. And I think, you know, day to day I sort of try and reconnect with some of those things and, and accept my limitations. You know, yesterday I said yes to a, to a radio thing later in the month and, 
even though I knew I had, you know, two other things on that day, I knew it was going to absolutely wipe me out. And, and then I sort of went back to them a couple of hours later with my tail between my legs and said, look, I just don't think I'm going to have the energy to do this. I'm really sorry. And it's, and it's hard because I've established myself as this, you know, can do very, um, uh, very busy, very capable person. And so it's hard to walk that back and go, actually, it is really difficult for me to exist. <laughs> Well, that's I mean, it's, that interests me as I was reading the book because really it's an incredibly honest portrait of your own life, but also of your like you know behaviours that you can now you know have a label for and you can identify. But it also, I was as I was reading it, I was thinking you are going to have to do a lot of press, you know, to talk about <laughs> this. People are going to be asking you very personal questions. Like you've literally signed up for throwing yourself into something that I could imagine at the best of times could be a confronting experience. Did mm. you factor that into your decision <laughs> of writing the book that you would actually have to publicise and talk about? I'd and love to say yes. Personal questions about it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think it was – the problem for me is I've always been, you know, one of the things that I was called before I had a label for myself was a show-off, you know, because mm. one of my ways of coping was um, – to just kind of wildly overcompensate. So I was often a bit of a class clown. You know, I was sort of an aspiring theatre kid. I was very, um, very much the, the sort of, you know, child who's talking to the teacher like they think they're a peer, which at the time I thought was very sophisticated and I'm sure was was <laughs> the absolutely opposite. So, yeah, my, my kind of... Um, you know, my instinct is always like, that's fine. You know, I love to perform. I love the spotlight. Um, and I, in a way I do. I think, I think what a lot of people don't understand um, with a lot of autistic people and particularly autistic women, you can turn it on. Like, you know, and so if I know I'm teaching, giving a lecture, you know, doing an interview, doing a radio show, I, I kind of factor that in. I'm like, all right, for those two hours, I'm I'm really, you know, firing on all cylinders. But then either side of it, I'm just a blob on the couch, you know, playing Minecraft um, and eating the snacks. Like, that's the stuff that people don't see. So yeah, it is. It's a it's an interesting kind of conundrum, I guess, with the publicity thing for the book, where it's like I'm aware that I have, you know, trained myself to present a certain way, and um, it has been quite a uh, you know, an interesting thought process thinking, well, you know, my instinct is that I have to be the, the you know, the model autistic person um, and wear a suit and, you know, be erudite and talk um, with kind of insight into my um, experience. Whereas if I was really, you know, the the other real me is me in a tracksuit that's got stains on it, you know, like I, before we took this call, I was frantically cleaning up my desk just so that you wouldn't see all of the banana peels and, you know, muesli bar wrappers that were all over it. So it's... it's um, you've, you've overestimated what I would be shocked by. That's all I would say. <laughs> <laughs> like today, today I have had a shower before I've wandered down to my office to do this, but I couldn't promise that every time I do one of these, that is the case. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really, it's a really tricky one. Cause it's like, you know, that if you, you're in this kind of bind, I guess, as like a publicly autistic person where, you know, if I say yes to a good weekend article and the guy comes over to our house, do I tidy up the whole house and kind of mm -hmm. be on my best behaviour or do I let him in when there's like a kind of, you know, cow path through the piles of clothes and, um, you know, the kind of lack of uh, executive function? So, yeah, I, I don't I mean, I don't know what the answer I is. Th I think that's a really 
brilliant question to be asking yourself because mm. I understand the instinct, like the natural human instinct, in the same way as regardless of autism diagnos- diagnosis or not, most people, if they're having a reporter over to their house, might go, <laughs> well, yeah, we'll clean up a little bit. That's <laughs> that, that seems like a reasonable response. But at the same time, I can understand. Like autism, you know, one of the things you talk about a lot in the book, and I think that people are having a greater understanding of now, is that it presents in so many mm. different ways and affects people so differently that I imagine that, you know, that you you grew up in an era where, you know, basically it's like, oh, autism. Oh, so you're like Rain Man. If yeah. I drop some coins, you'll be able to count the coins. You know, that's what people thought autism was from popular culture. Now we have a greater understanding that autism as a label can actually represent itself in so many different ways and be very sort of you know, ranges of functioning. You talk a bit around the language around functioning that we may actually get to mm. in this conversation as well. But uh, forgive me if I... Uh, the audience always know this. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to get everything right. But the thing that you know, really I took out of this was part of the difficulty people have in understanding what autism is, that autism can really affect people very differently. And I can imagine as someone who, you know, you're out there going, well, I'm going to present myself as having my shit together, having the house tidy, not having banana peels on my desk, is a natural kind of response to go, this is how the normies do it. I want to fit in with the rest of society. But I I bet you also worry about, I don't want to represent myself as someone who is not struggling with the everyday challenges of this. Yeah, it's really hard, you know, and and I I think about when I'm sort of most authentically myself, it's usually stuff like when I'm at Comic Con, you know, and I'm in a costume and I'm sitting in a sensory room because I need to take a bit a chill pill. Like it's um it's a it's really hard and there's this I think this kind of monolithic understanding of what autism is or misunderstanding um in the public eye. And so, you know, anything that strays from that is is tricky, I think, for people to understand. And I think you're right that there is there is a kind of uh, I think a deepening understanding of at least the differences in in presentations. Um, but but things, for example, like this idea that uh, you know to 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 talk about you know so called functioning labels like that you're the same that it's a static state you know that you get your diagnosis and that's it forever you're that person every day like it's just not true like. You know, Monday this week, I was having such bad anxiety. I was having panic attacks, you know, could barely function. Um, today, I feel pretty good. Like, and and most people who are autistic will, will, will say something similar, that they have, you know, days, weeks where they're pretty much mute, you know, sitting at home, incapable, incapable of doing sort of simplest tasks. And then other times when you're really firing on all cylinders. And I think that's hard for people to understand too, that it's... Um, that it's not a it's not a constant. The constant is autism, you know. Uh, but yeah, that it might kind of present differently day to day. Um, to say nothing of yeah, person to person. Um, so there are a lot of these these new newer concepts which I think people are really, you know, I, I'm pretty switched on. Like I, I've worked as a cultural critic. You know, I'm I'm doing post grade research. I didn't realise it could be different. It could present differently in, you know, women or gender diverse people until I started looking to be diagnosed. Um, so if somebody like me who's pretty media literate doesn't know that there's more than Rain Man and Sheldon Cooper, then, yeah, your, your average person, I think, is still very much in thrall to, as you say, the idea that we're all ca- card counting, you know, savants. 
Um, and that's so it's it is it's hard. Like people, I think people glean their understanding of it from these um, these representations, which are still representation, but they're just imperfect because they're only one they're one aspect of it. So. Um... Obviously, we should clear up. It's clearly because, you know, your parents had vaccines um, when they were younger. Whoops. I mean, for the record, (laughs) we should put it out there that clearly that's what it's caused by. Um, But, no, there is obviously a lot of, you know, language around autism in that, I mean, I I make a joke of it, but Mm. it is the language of where the anti-vaxxer movement came from was the idea that, you know, people were getting vaccines and then their kids were having autism. When you see like something like autism almost weaponized in that way because there's twofold to that one it's untrue but mm. the second thing is that what they're saying is this is such a terrible thing that your child would have that it's you should be willing the risk of not having a vaccine because you wouldn't want to have this absolutely terrible thing so when you hear that language when you see that sort of debate how do you respond to that oh it's incredible and it's amazing how how little critical thinking there is around it you know like i'll, I'll watch good panel shows and they'll, they might sort of stray into talking about vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaxxers and people will say things like vaccine injuries and I just think, what do you mean? Like, like, do you mean autism? Because um, I, although I appreciate that, yes, there are some communities who have genuinely been, you know, treated very badly with vaccines and have totally valid hesitancies, this idea of, oh, what about autism? You know, it's very insidious. And, and like, the paper that, that um, Andrew Wakefield published was pretty much retracted as soon as it was published, you know. And, and yeah. uh, so he was, de- he was, you know, disgraced very quickly, but it's incredible how, how, um, how quickly it took hold. And it's, it's still there. And I think it, at its heart what is so upsetting about it is that it's this idea that it would be better to have a dead child um, or a you know, child with polio than an autistic one. Um, and I think that narrative of the tragedy of autism is still very pervasive. And, you know, a lot of the narrative, the, the sort of discourse around autism is um, autism parents. Um, and, you know, it's you, you really, like, I, I always feel like I, I need to tread carefully because I don't, I think there are so many great parents who are amazing advocates for their kids, but it's this... It's almost like a kind of trademark, you know, the autism mum title case, like, uh, you know, trademark symbol. Um, And a lot of that is the doom, you know, like there was a piece, (laughs) there's a piece on World Autism um, Acceptance Day this year that ran on Mamma Mia and it was anonymous, which is a classic, you know, and it was, it was just extraordinary. It was like this nightmare of raising my autistic kid and then playing this autistic kid off against the neurotypical kid who was just a dream, you know, and could say, I love you and give you a hug and look you in the eye and all. It's, um, it's, it's really out there. Like, uh, and I think I was, I was aware of it before I was diagnosed, but yeah, it's a bit like the matrix, you know, when you get the diagnosis, you suddenly realize the extent to which the world is really geared against, um, autistic people. Um, and yeah, the, the anti-vaxxing is, is um, I think it's really upsetting because, yeah, as you say, like it has its roots in this inherently anti-autistic um, notion that nobody seems to talk about. So it's, you know, through COVID, this, this, this whole kind of vaccine hesitancy, anti-vax movement, which has sprung up again, I feel like that's the elephant in the room. And, you know, Andrew Wakefield has, has, has popped up again in the States and, you know, he's leading the charge of a lot of the anti-vax sentiment. And, um, yeah, the lack of kind of critical engagement with the, the kind of implications of that 
of, of, of talking about that, I think is quite striking. But yeah, you know, like, I just don't think many people care. Like, it's one of those things where autistic people are still very marginalised, like, and um, for whatever gains. And uh, is there a misunderstanding again? I mean, I think, you know, mm. I, I, look, generally always on this show, this, it is, I mean, I've been doing it nearly a decade. You know, there's been a increase in my understanding around a whole range of issues. And I hope if I do it for another decade, there'll be a further increase in my understanding around those issues. So, um, you know, uh, there is this idea Firstly, that, you know, autism was just one thing and, Mm. you know, presents itself in one way. So obviously we're learning that that is not the case. Then there was this idea that autism would only have some sort of beneficial, like, aspect to your life in a Rain Man style way. You know, suddenly you're a genius and you can play the the violin or you can be completely obsessive about one thing. And so then it had this almost magical quality to it. So it's either something that's going to destroy your life Mm. or it's going to give you magical abilities and i think what we're finally starting to learn or have an understanding of is that it doesn't have to be either of those two things it can be a range of things in between it doesn't have to destroy your life or you know yeah touch you with a magic wand and give you special (laughs) gifts yeah and and in a way i think it's somewhere in the middle you know i think i think we all experience degrees of triumph and degrees of tragedy um but yeah, those those two. It's a very binary uh, narrative, and I think it has been for a long time. That yeah, it's either de- absolute devastation or or kind of you know otherworldly brilliance. And I think the other thing that's really frustrating is a lot of the time when when you know autism advocates do speak out. You know, there's this. Um, <laughs> one of uh, there's an autistic theorist who I I, I love the work of, and, and she talks about the, you know this idea of the the poo narrative. Like, mm-hmm. it's always that somebody goes, yeah, but I know someone who can't. You know, he's always shooting himself, or he has to wear nappies, and it's this this bizarre kind of scatological, abject idea of a life having no value because somebody can't go to the toilet by themselves, which. I would guarantee, you know, outside of a very small pocket of, you know, people on Reddit who would self-identify as, you know, high-functioning Aspies, um, no autistic people think that. Like all, you know, the autistic advocates who are, you know, able to front up to the media or write books or express, you know, their thoughts on blogs and things are doing so for the benefit of all autistic people. So this idea that, you know, by virtue of having written a book, which um, was not a walk in the park, um, that I somehow don't care or, you know, I sort of setting myself aside from people who have higher support needs or who are non-speaking is just, you know, demented to me. Like some of the autistic advocates who I most admire are non-speaking. Like it's um, it's this it's this kind of, you know, hierarchy that is, is sort of forced upon you and then, you know, people kind of accuse you of, yeah, not caring or ignoring the plight of other people. And I think it's not the case at all. I think if anything, you know, um, those autistic advocates who are capable, you know, who want to um, speak um, in the media are doing so because, you know, the hope is that we improve the outcomes for everybody. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a huge minefield. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you become a spokesperson for a community regardless of whether that's your intention or not. Yeah. You're the first person who's come on this show to talk about autism, Mm. you know, mostly because Hannah keeps, you know, (laughs) but (laughs) 
You might have been the second, but we've had a couple of reschedules. It turns out she has a busy schedule. But but you do, just by the nature of sharing your story and writing a book, of course you do. That is, and people are going to, you know, you are not an expert, but you are going to have to fill the role of expertise for some people because Mm. for some people it's the first time they're going to hear about these stories, hear about these nuances. So the responsibility to the community that you represent, whether you – feel like you want to or not Mm. do do you feel that heavily hugely yeah and I think um it was something I really struggled with in writing the book I think that there was a there was a much more you know apologetic draft of the book where I was sort of tying myself up in knots every couple of paragraphs saying this is my experience and I think what I realized in the end was that it would be better to say, yeah, this is my experience, but here's how it might manifest for other people. And, you know, here, here's the broader kind of examination of what I went through and how it would affect, you can imagine how it would affect other people. Because, um, you know, talking to friends of mine who are not autistic but work in the field, you know, that's often something that, that people are kind of longing for. And so parents might get told, or well, your kid has sensory sensitivities or is going to experience meltdowns or you know, all of these different circumscribed interests. Like, what does that mean? So for me to be able to go, here's a chapter about when I was crazy about dinosaurs. And it was very weird because I was only five and, you know, no five-year-old is really meant to be reading The Dinosaur Heresies by Robert Backer. So so then my hope was that people could read that and go, got it, that's what a circumscribed interest is. Okay, so here's how it manifested in her life. It's obviously very different for, you know, our son or our daughter or whatever, but to kind of use my experience to... Um, yeah, illuminate some of those things that people maybe didn't know so much about. And yeah, you know, there are there are probably things in the book that some people would be surprised to to read about in the context of autism and there's probably some stuff that's not in the book, you know, that that I sort of felt was pretty well covered, you know. We've talked about the eye contact thing, you know, enough at this point. Like I didn't feel like I needed to talk about why eye contact is difficult. Um so yeah, it was a process of kind of thinking about what would be most useful more broadly. So it's a funny thing because I get that it is it is a memoir, so in a way it is about me, but it's also kind of not, you know, I sort of just treated myself as a bit of a test subject um, and, you know, hoped that that, that sort of personal experience um, would be engaging Uh and the kind, of, you know, in a way, I guess it's a kind of a coming of age narrative as well. So, so I sort of, I, you know, the, the memoirists that I really admired, people like Carrie Fisher, write about terrible things that they've been through in such an engaging way. And so I, I sort of felt like, you know, a lot of autism narratives are still pretty kind of do, you know, it's like. They might not be full tragedy, but the front cover's got a, you know, kind of sepia picture of someone looking out of a window or a puzzle piece or something. So I I sort of wanted to um, – I knew that it was going to cover traumatic, you know, experiences, but I didn't want it to be a a, um, a misery narrative, you know. Well, you talk about the front cover. The front <laughs> cover's a good example of this. The front cover is certainly not like a, a do-a front cover. Like it is how, – how would you best <laughs> – it is a series of like gl- glittery uh, 
shapes, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. I've got it here in front of me, but I'm not particularly good at describing. Yeah. Uh, what, what, is that what it is? Do you know, it's really funny because the cover, I think, is, is a classic example of, of the, the kind of journey I went on in writing the book. I, I gave Hardy Grant this Pinterest board of, like, very cool, like, you know, old Thrasher mag covers and kind of graphic design. And, <laughs> and, and instead, Ella, who did the cover design, actually read the book and then, and then designed something <laughs> that really, you know, that really spoke to them. So it's, it's basically, it's a spectrum, you know, it's a rainbow. Um, right. And it's, um, it's also very sparkly because I, I talk about, you know, one of my earliest kind of sensory seeking things was that I love to look at sparkly stuff. And so, I was really touched when when they sent me the um you know the the ideas for the cover because I thought my god I couldn't have just come up with this you know I felt mm. very seen. Well, you did. Mm. Yeah, you wrote a book where you <laughs> described all the ingredients they put on the cover. To be honest, <laughs> to be fair, yeah. you literally one hundred percent in the definition of coming up with it. <laughs> you gave them the mystery box and they just took the ingredients and made them into a cover, but it was all there. <laughs> it was, it was. But yeah, that was. I think that was what was really beautiful about it. And it, and that's the thing. It's like you know, you go to a book, and there are some fantastic books about autism. Um, some of which I use, you know, in my research, many of which I've read and enjoyed, but they are just so bleak. Like the front covers are foreboding, you know, it's like a scribble or it's some some way of, of kind of uh, representing, you know, a different mind. Um, and I really, really didn't want to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's so sparkly and colourful because I think, I think autistic people are great, you know, um, and... There is one of the nicest things that somebody said immediately after I was diagnosed was um, one of my friends said, some of my favourite people are, no, all of my favourite people are autistic. Um, <laughs> and, and so I kind of wanted to celebrate that too in the book. You know, part that was partially, was sort of like autistic joy as well, because we talk a lot about the struggle and, um, you know, the, the diagnostic criteria are still overwhelmingly deficit-based. It's It's, you know, social deficits. It's deficits in... Social re- re- reciprocal. Oh, I can never say it. <laughs> reciprocal social, you know, stuff. Um, it's it's obsessive interest. It's circumscribed. This, that, and the other. So, to kind of take some of those clinical definitions, um, which are just a fact of life, you know, I'd love them to change to a more uh, strength-based model. But until they do, let's take you know circumscribed obsessive interests and 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 you know explain that in a way which is you know a bit more joyful. Right. Like, you know, really... I, I love it when, you know, when a kid comes up and talks to me about like mm. light switches, I think that's, fu- it's great. Like, I think that's what a lot of the time, uh, you know, non-autistic people find that sort of confronting or, or weird, you know, like my, the classic stories of, you know, the kid who's crazy about the rubbish truck, like, like we've read them a million times and. I just think it's fantastic. I can listen to autistic people talk to me about their special interests for a thousand years and, and vice versa, unfortunately. <laughs> so, but I, this is one of the more interesting things I think about the book and where it's pitched and mm. where your particular story fits into this. And and I, I mean, I mentioned Hannah before, but partly because, you know, you, you uh, name check her yourself. Yep. Um, she's obviously somebody who's very high profile, you know, had a later in life autism diagnosis as well. And, you know, wrote a show, Douglas, where she very much talked about and dealt with it. And mm. there was 
things in your book that reminded me of the way that she told her story, which was like, here's a story that is still about me, mm. um, but now it is reframed in a different way because of this diagnosis that I've had. I'm able to look at different parts of my life or different things that I am obsessed with or that I, the way that I pick them apart. And here is a different context for that. In some ways, if you took autism out of this book, it would read pretty much still as a standard, mm. you know, kind of biographical, autobiographical memoir. You yeah. know, like there is, it, it was it was so funny to me because, of course, we all understand the idea that, that, that when people go, oh, yeah, I think I'm a little bit autistic or everyone's a little <laughs> bit autistic or I'm a little on the spectrum myself. That That is a weird area because you are taking something that is a legitimate thing and you are making it your own without a diagnosis. But mm. weirdly enough... I think this book almost makes that point. There is a really good connection between, I think, it doesn't seem foreign, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Great. I think a lot of people could read this and say, I understand that now because I am a little bit like that or mm. that is a little bit like what I was going through at that age. But I can see in this instance how autism turned that up and made that even more difficult. It doesn't feel like something that it's a, mil a million miles away. I'm not picking up a book about, you know, a science fiction book about a different race and be like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to understand any of this. <laughs> it all felt really understandable, but just with certain parts of it, you know, turned up to 11 or turned up to 12. Yeah, I think that was something I really wanted to engage with because I, I, you know, I, I always kind of get my hackles up a bit when people say, well, aren't we all a bit on the spectrum? Because, of course, no, we're not. But, but I do think there's an opportunity in that phrase to say, um, no, we aren't, but here are some things that, you know, all autistic people experience to some extent or, the, or another that, that you may also have experienced and sort of try and engage with that, that sense of empathy, like... Because again, it's it's a bit like what I was saying with the diagnostic kind of terms. They're so um, kind of granular and foreign to a lot of people that they're just like, well, I don't know what that is. I don't know what sensory overload is. You know, get over it. Like, but you know, if you can talk about very sort of specific experiences, it's that classic thing. It's like songwriting. You know, I used to be a music critic, and every every musician I've ever interviewed is like, you know, if you try and write a universal song, it's it's doomed to fail. But as soon as you write something personal. Um, everybody can connect with it, even if they haven't been through that thing. They can kind of find some thread of of um, of the universal in it. So I think, yeah, that was a that was that was something that was kind of a guiding principle, I guess, was to go, all right. So you think that we're all a bit on the spectrum. I'll I'll kind of try and illustrate how we aren't, but in a way that is inclusive, because I think. You know, I guess there is that if I do feel a responsibility, um, it's not so much as a role model, but I guess as a kind of cultural ambassador, you know, I've been very lucky to work as a writer. It, it just happened to be something that, you know, I, I learnt to do. And I think it was a, a lot to do with being able to not hide behind a keyboard, but it was easier to interact with people through the written word. Um so, you know, with that as my kind of power, like, uh, yeah, to be able to kind of um, illuminate some of these these issues for the broader um, audience, I think, is was something that I really wanted to do with the book. You know, I'm happy to talk about myself. Like, I'm a big show off. I, I'm, I'm that person at the dinner party. You know, that, that part of it was not hard. Like, I've got 40 million more anecdotes that I could have put in there that would have been very entertaining. Yeah. As you say, as a kind of pretty straightforward, like, you know, coming of age book of essays. Um, but yeah, that, that ability to kind of take them and, and, and spin them through 
that prism of autism, I think, was was what was really important to me. This is clearly a book about identity, but it's not just about your identity in terms of autism. There's like a couple of chapters that speak to your identity around like you know gender and, and sexuality as well. Um, how I mean, everything is you clearly, mm. but it's interesting. That I just think that is it was this book very much like well I'm just going to come out about everything or I can't <laughs> I come I can't out 40 tell. times <laughs> I've got like I mean you could have done another couple of books is what I'm saying <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of chapters at the end you really could have like spun into sequels but now how important was it to tell those aspects of the story within this story really important because I think um it's hard for me you know I said something I say in the book like there are a lot of aspects of my, my kind of gender identity or lack thereof um, and my sexuality, which is probably a bit more concrete, uh, th- that I find it really hard to unlink from autism. And I know that that's true for a lot of autistic people. There is a much higher percentage of, you know, what they might call uh, non-normative sexuality um, in the uh, in the autism community and also gender diversity. And so... There were, you know, there, there were a lot of things that, that I wanted to kind of establish in this book and, and, and initially it kind of went from being this idea of, oh, did you know autism is different sometimes for women and girls to, to as I wrote it, you know, lockdown happened, I was kind of thinking more about my own place in the world and I think kind of additional things came up, which had always been there, but I think I finally had the time to the sort of breathing space like we all did in 2020 to really reassess our lives. Um, so I, in writing it and going back over, you know, things that happened in childhood, things that happened in high school, uni, yeah, I was able to kind of finally have words to, um, the words to say it. But, yeah, part of, part of um, I think, one of the uh, aspects of the kind of discourse around autism that is emerging is, is well, if you think back a year ago to the first season of Love on the Spectrum, the idea that autistic people would just want to go on dates was pretty wild for a lot of people. So firstly, could I just say that I rarely make myself notes while we're doing this show like because I just like to engage in the conversation. But 10 seconds ago, I just wrote on a piece of paper, I just wrote Love OTS because <laughs> I really wanted to speak to you about what your thoughts were around Love on the Spectrum. So I'm just so glad that you yeah. brought it up. Many thoughts, but yeah. So if you if you look back to that first season, the, the the mere fact of there being a show that said autistic people are capable of love and want to be loved, you know, for a lot of people, like there was galaxy brains all over the country because I think the previously the notion was again Rain Man, you know, the the, the kind of self contained person who has no interest in a personal relationship can't have one, you know. Um, all of these kind of deficit ideas when the reality is um, a lot of autistic people, not all, but a lot really desperately want to make friends, desperately want to have a relationship. Um, and yes, obviously we have, uh, you know, issues in our social communication that are, you know, varied, um, which can make that really difficult. Um, and uh, other stuff as well, sensory issues, you know, um, interests, not, not kind of meshing with other people. So, to have gone from that in the space of the year to the second season where there are queer people on the show, you know, um, is a big leap because uh, I think that, you know, when that first season came out, uh, most autistic people that I know were like, I wish it was more diverse, you know, in many ways. Like it was pretty white also. But, but um, 
nobody really felt seen by it. And I, you know, I love Michael. I think he's fantastic. And I do know a lot of autistic people who are, you know, I think I say in the book, you know, heroically heterosexual, like, um, but, but there is a big, big, you know, I think it's like 15 or 16% of, of the autism community that it's experiences gender diversity, um, that are, you know, what we might broadly term to be kind of sexually fluid, you know, that, or, or bisexual. Um, and so, yeah, we didn't really feel that that was something that was reflected. And it was kind of, I think, part of my, my you know, you know, you, you come out many times in your life, like first of all to yourself, then to kind of, you know, a few friends and family and it kind of happens again and again and again. And and I guess as I was rethinking my own, you know, dating history and, and place in the world, watching that first season, I was like, that's not me. You know, I don't feel seen by this. Like why are they making all these people go on, these very formal dates, which in and of themselves, what a nightmare for an autistic person. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I think that was a huge thing for me in the book. And I I agree. I do think that the last few chapters kind of whoosh through a lot of pretty important, well, not whoosh through, but you know, there's definitely material there that could be expanded. But um, I think, you know, the idea for a lot of parents that, that, part of I guess the sort of tragedy in inverted commas of autism is this idea that the child will never love or is incapable of loving or can't say I love you you know that's the classic kind of cliche that you see in the autism parenting blogosphere um when the reality is they very much can say I love you it just might not be those words you know um and so yeah love on the spectrum it's a tricky one because I love all the people on it I I just I, I I really admire them um for giving it a shot I think where it still is a bit uh, for me is the framing feels still I think just a bit infantilizing it's still a bit like look at them go you know they're going on dates like even the voiceover it's like and I love Brooke Satchel I think she's a great voiceover artist but there's 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 so much about it that it's just a little bit othering still I mean I did think it was good this season that not all of the people they went on dates with were also autistic because, you know, that was that was another thing about the first season. It was like, well, autistic people wouldn't be here if we didn't date and marry and have children with, you know, non-autistic people. Like, we don't know what the genetic link is, but it, it does exist. And so this idea that you would sort of corral autistic people into only dating other autistic people. I say this as someone dating another autistic yeah. person. Um, but, but, yeah. That, but that's okay. <laughs> totally. You were allowed to choose to do that. <laughs> exactly. I, got, I ended up there eventually. But, yeah, it felt it felt kind of limiting. So I was really pleased to see that they obviously took on board some, some feedback for the second season. But, yeah, I mean. I think that's interesting. I mean, look, I, I do have a pet theory that, and I know a lot of people who work on that show, and so uh, they – I absolutely know that the intentions of that show are like 100% oh, totally. r- the right the right intentions. But like most things, when you are, you know, working with a group that has not been represented on television before, I often find that the first attempts at like representation always come across as yeah. clumsy or overly about that person's identity. You know, we see it, it doesn't matter whether it's trans representation, mm. whether it was like, whether it's people of colour the first time they're ever invited on anything, it's you're gay, so you can only talk about being gay, or you're a person of color, so the issue we're getting on you know, it's it's person of color week on our yeah, show, yeah. so you are on this show, or this trans character, all their storylines are about them being, being trans, trans. Can't just have <laughs> right. And so, I was the same, I watched that first series, and 
there was an aspect of it that I, I felt like I'm being like, you know, when I'm like, I feel so, so inspired by this and I feel like that's wrong. You know what I mean? I feel like that's not like, we, yeah, it, it's got to move a little. And I do feel like they, it strikes me as one of those shows mm. where some shows would hear the criticisms of the first series and go, fuck you. No yeah. one else is even putting autistic people on TV. We're trying to yeah, find them love and we love and care. But they, I, I feel like at least in watching what I've watched of season two, mm. that maybe they did listen to, you know, what we could have done better the second time around and maybe hopefully listen to what they could do better the third time around. Yeah, yeah. I think they definitely did. And I think, you know, uh, imperfect representation is still representation. So right. just the fact of there being, you know, five or six autistic people on TV last year was amazing. But, yeah, yeah it's absolutely true that 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 beyond oh well you know I'm because I'm trying to think of like things where there's an autistic character where it's not about their autism and it's not really the case yet I think everything's going to be okay the Josh Thomas show um mm. for, for what are now very obvious reasons because he is also a member of the late diagnosed club um did I think a really good job at not making everything about those characters being autistic mm. um but it's always there you know and yeah you do have that burden of of kind of educating I guess as well as representing um uh, so, you know, one day it would be nice to have, I don't know, an autistic bachelor or something. Um, but, yeah, look, it was better this year. I, I imagine, like, quiz shows and things like that. I mean, again, that's stereotypical. Oh, yeah. But I imagine <laughs> we've had, you know, autistic people, you know, on TV. And I'm, I'm sure in other roles as well. Yeah. Like, just without, like, the same as you, just not having had the words to explain, you know, what it was about, you know, yeah, well, their particular brain. I was very autistic in going on, you know, the Einstein factor with my special subject being the life and work of Stephen Sondheim, but I just didn't know it at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think we could run a few circles around the hard quiz I know. Cast, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my girlfriend and I often look at each other and go, that person's definitely neurotypical. Yeah, they seem, they seem very not autistic. <laughs> I mean, but it is. I mean, again, I guess that is in a, in a way a good thing. We are yeah. it, the people aren't being, you know, they're celebrated for some of the things that might, in other aspects of their life, you know, make things more difficult. So, yeah, uh, I ask people on this show whether they have a life philosophy of any kind. Clem, do you have a work life love anything philosophy? You know, motto. Yes, it could be big, it could be little. I do. I actually have it tattooed on my. You probably can't quite see it, but um, it's it's the the catchphrase from Galaxy Quest: "Never give up, never surrender." Um, which is, for anyone who hasn't seen it, a, a truly incredible film where um, these aliens intercept the TV signals of a Star Trek-esque show called Galaxy Quest and think that it's real. They think they're historical documents. Um, and I really took to that. Uh, the first time I saw it, I was like, what a great motto. <laughs> and in the show, it's kind of like, you know, to, to live long and prosper, to boldly go. It's this sort of gag that eventually develops this real meaning throughout the, the course of the narrative. Um and I think that's I think that, you know, when when I sort of try and zero in on what my what my life philosophy is, I think that's actually pretty close, you know. And in a way I kind of see that reflected in having lived as an autistic person who didn't know they were autistic. It was very it would have been very easy to give up, you know. Um and there have definitely been very bleak times in my life where I thought um, what's the point? You know, I, I'm clearly kind of malfunctioning and I can't kind of see more than six months ahead. And that continues to this day, you know. Um, I also have 
um, been recently diagnosed with <laughs> premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a truly spectacular condition. So I, you know, that, that thing of not being able to kind of see very far into the future is a constant, you know, it's a constant companion. So I think, I think never give up is, um, is a really big one for me and never surrender, I guess, kind of speaks to, um, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, very sort of strongly held beliefs about the world, usually around stuff like, you know, trade unionism, um, but, but kind of, I guess, just more broadly. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I guess that would be what it is for me. Um, and that's, you know, like we're, we're not very good at talking in Australia, I think, about things like like suicide and depression. I think we're, we're trying, you know. Um but but there's been there's been you know all these rules around those things previously as well yeah. like, I mean, in a media sense you know this having worked yes. in the media like because we will often have frank conversations on this show around you know depression around anxiety around suicide mm. and I've lost several friends because I am you know mm. in that age group now where yep. I've lost several friends to suicide and mm. look to be honest I don't think I've ever been entirely suicidal but I have definitely been at a point where uh, as my therapist described to me, very close to that, which is that I don't think about killing myself, but I fantasize about, about ways that I would die. Yeah, like I think- you know that I that I hope the plane would go down, or oh. I hope like you know that the car would crash, or that it'd just be great if I got this disease and just died, or yeah. if I just died in my sleep. Yeah, yeah, the plane that uh, my one was a seven four seven accidentally flying into my balcony. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think yeah, I think that's a big thing, and I think you know, I think a lot of people, if we say, are you suicidal? people go well I'm not thinking about you know I'm not actively thinking about doing it but I think there are kind of levels of it um and you know there is a there are pretty striking rates of of suicidality in the autistic community you know and a lot of that I think is to do with feeling despair you know we, we it's really easy to feel like you can't communicate your needs sometimes literally you know some people who are non-speaking will find it very difficult to communicate their needs um, but that, that, that feeling of being um, just not, you know, not right, like constantly getting things wrong. And, I, I, you know, you asked earlier what I think would have been different if I had known earlier in my life. Like I look back to the sort of what I would describe to, you know, as the worst things I've done or biggest fuck-ups I've made and can absolutely see autism being, you know, a key a key part in all of those and, yeah, the build-up of that can be very profound, I think. Um, but, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a tough thing in Australia because I think often the conversation starts and then it's like, here's the lifeline numbers, you know, and it, it mm. sort of it stops before it begins. And so I hope that, I hope that moving forward there is more of a willingness to – nobody wants to talk about it, but, you know, like we, we – in my family history there, there have been um, – you know, my dad um, attempted suicide in the 90s. So it's, it's. I guess for us, it's always felt normal to talk about. Um, and so I think I often find it, maybe it's an autistic thing. I'm often s- sort of shocked by how how little people will engage with that discussion. It's um, an uncomfortable discussion. And I think that people feel like they don't have the right words. You yeah. Know, they, like, you know, and they're like, please, please just talk to someone else. Please just talk to a, <laughs> please just talk to an expert because I don't know what to say. Yeah, well, it's uh, that, the, it's that the horrible thing, thing being that there is no necessarily right thing to say. Sometimes no, it's just 
And the, and the I conversation. Think, I think the horrible thing is is that in saying, oh, I don't know what to say, you just say nothing. And so it's a bit like people mm. saying, you know, are you getting help? But, but, but then actually nobody's giving any help. Like, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that was, wow, the, my life philosophy went re- <laughs> got really dark. <laughs> this normally gets a bit dark towards the Great. end. I'd like we do some light and fluffy autism chat for 45 minutes and then we get... <laughs> 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 uh, I, I, you mentioned your, like, firmly held beliefs and you, you cited trade unionism as mm-hmm. one of them. I love people's firmly held beliefs and I love to hear what they are. But let's start with trade unionism. I assume you're fervently against it and think we should abolish all absolutely. unions. You didn't explain, but I assume that's what you mean. No, that's absolutely right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think I think before I kind of knew more about my place in the world, I often felt like, the, you know, being in a union was, was a good way of being, you know, protected and supported and... and um, I'm in two, you know, I'm in the the MEAA and in the NTEU because I teach at university. And, um, yeah, it's it's something that I guess is sort of a special interest of mine. I love... I love I love the theatre of trade unionism as well. You know that that I love when Luke Hillary yells yells at people, calls them comrades. Um, but um, but yeah, the, the the protection that it that it can that it can offer people is I think profound, and I think something that we've maybe lost touch with a bit in the kind of you know this diffuse precarious era that we live in. It's probably more important than ever. Like our university, I'm a casual tutor. Um, we're, we're so casualized. I think in our department, it's like 80%. Um, and there's this sense of kind of hopelessness that people have where they're like, why would I join? You know, why should I join the union? I'm casual. Like, I don't even know if I'll have a job next year when the reality is, is that collective bargaining is what will, you know, work towards guaranteeing that somebody has a job next year. Um, so yeah, I think it was instilled in me from a fairly early early age because I watched my dad be, you know, treated quite badly as a freelance um, he was an architect and, you know, got ripped off left, right and centre in the, the recession that we had to have. So I think I, I think I from an early age and mum was an actress growing up. So she was an equity member. Um, so it was just a normal thing, you know, and we lived across the road from the, the transport workers union. So I would often see them go out in their, you know, marching gear heading off for May Day. Um, and I think, you know, I think as an autistic person, too, who's who's passionate about um, encouraging more autistic people into the workplace. Well, you know, actually it's not, it's not our fault. Like I think there are, you know, there's a huge percentage of autistic people who would love to work and who have never been able to hold paid employment. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's part of that sort of collective quality, I guess, in, in, in striving towards changing working conditions for autistic people as well. Uh, education. Can we talk about that? Because yeah. obviously one of, one of the things that, you know, post pandemic has really you know come out flying, uh, much like the arts industry. <laughs> it's great guys. Um, but obviously, you know, how do you see the role of education in our society? You know, for everybody, mm. what is the shape of it at the moment? What have we learned in this last year about, you know, the nature and value of education, particularly in the higher education sector? Like what are your thoughts around any or all of those topics? I think it's pretty clear that our, our current federal government doesn't value it at all. Um, you know, we, the, the university sector, I think, got either either zero or very little JobKeeper support. Um, yeah, it's a really tough one. I think I think so much of it is coloured by having been autistic at school and, and what an unpleasant experience that was. So there are aspects of school you know, compulsory schooling that I, I don't agree with. And I, I often think, you know, if I had a kid, what would I, how would I approach it? I think um, 
you know, the divide too between between private and, and state schools is, is becoming so vast. You know, there was a big, big expose in the in the, the Age and Sydney Morning Herald papers of about a week ago of just the like extraordinary amounts of capital that these private schools have, that they have Olympic swimming pools, you know, and, and I went to an all right state school, but it, even it was falling down. Like, you know, and, and my state school was one of those ones that was often in the top enter scores, you know, had a pretty good reputation for the music and sports departments. So you can imagine what it's like at the schools where, you know, they're really hard up. And I think, I think there's so much about our current idea of how, how to educate, which has just gone off the deep end. I think, you know, I was finishing up school in 99 and we very much felt that we were essentially employees of the school. You know, it's like you're there to get a good score. So the school can kind of dine out on that. Um, and it, I don't think I used my, well, what are they now, ATAR? It was an enter when I was there. Back in my day. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that, that no one cares once you leave school. Um, and, and talking to some of, you know, my autistic friends and colleagues for the book, I think the people who had, uh, like, individual learning plans seem to do, do really well. I'm really interested in that as an idea, that, that, um, that kind of removing that competitive ranking quality from education, which is just so, so hurtful to so many people. Like, Well, and also seems just to be so ridiculous. Totally you know, arbitrary, that, yeah. Well, and particularly because, you know, people don't need a general range of skills in the society that no. we currently have. Like if you are good at something or passionate about something and there's certain skills around something, encouraging people's interest and passions mm. in that and not worrying so much about the other shit they're not going to need to know about. It seems to be – you can see it in the statistics of people already going back from, you know, even primary school and secondary school. Mm. There are some kids who did heaps worse at home. You know, yeah. and that'll be interesting to decide how they did heaps worse. There are some kids who did heaps better at home, and it'll be interesting to discover, you know, why they did heaps better. But all those factors, like, I mean, it should be completely obvious to everybody at this point that the idea that it needs to be so, uh, you know, one way, mm. one size fits all, it seems like an incredibly outdated model to oh, me. Oh, it's just, it's, it's very outmoded. You know, I even think like looking at, at university. So I teach second and third year screenwriting. Um, and this year we had a sort of 50-50 split. So we had a bit of face-to-face. All of us taught like one face-to-face and one Zoom or one or two of each. Um, and this year, because people had a choice, it was really interesting. I think that the, the people who chose to study online did so for a variety of reasons, you know, um, it, that might've been, that they were neurodivergent, that they were, you know, living regionally, didn't want to travel four hours onto campus. Like, and so I think I think giving people the option, it's a bit like the remote work thing. We've realised that this thing that they were sort of holding at arm's length for so long actually is very useful for a lot of people, um, whether they're people with disability, like people with kids at home, um, you know, there are there are reasons to make things more accessible. Um and it's it's a tricky one for me because obviously as someone who's a, you know interested in trade unionism is pretty pretty kind of um, you know pretty much a commie I guess a socialist like I I always feel a real um, complexity because I hesitate to to kind of really go rah rah I'd love to get more autistic people in, into capitalism um, because I think that it's we're currently in a bad in a bad way that way but then at the the flip side of that shouldn't be, well, nobody should ever work because I know that also work gives you, um, you know, a sense of self-worth. It allows you to have independence. 
So yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a very tough one. I would like all of the autistic people to get well remunerated, you know, fully unionized jobs in industries that take care of them. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what those industries are, but yeah, the education thing is, um, is really stuffed. Uh, it's, it's a tough one because I guess prior to the, prior to the pandemic, you know, I was a year or so into my PhD kind of putting together for the first time in my life, what felt like a kind of, you know, five or 10 year plan. Um, which has now completely gone out the window. So I don't know if, you know, postdocs will exist when I finish. Like, And and is there, I mean, is there a space in a masterclass world? Mm. Are people going to decide that they're going to go to university and, you know, have a hex debt, you know, that they're going to have to work off as a screenwriter, for example, mm. or are they going to go, I'm going to pay $100 for my masterclass subscription and watch Aaron Sorkin and, you know, whoever talk about, you know, screenwriting and then go and write a screenplay. Like there does feel in this current world that we have, you know, yeah. that there are perhaps other options, you know, for people to explore in place of what where higher education used to be, which means that higher education probably has to rethink why it has extra value than those things. Yeah, I think that ultimately it should just be about learning, you know, and this idea that all higher ed is sort of geared towards jobs. Well, what jobs? You know, this whole thing yeah. that the government introduced where they were, you know, dropping the dropping the STEM courses fees and upping the arts fees, well, you're just creating another catastrophe in waiting where suddenly you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of maths graduates all going for, you know, one or two jobs. Right. So... <laughs> I, I, you know, I would love to see see university just be kind of re refigured as yeah, place of learning. Um, and and okay, so I have a magic wand. I don't have a magic wand, by the way, for the sake of this. But <laughs> oh, for the man. sake of this conversation, I have a magic wand, and I can magically change one asp- aspect of university education straight away. But it is only one thing that I can change straight away. What do I change? Enter scores or ATARs. Like, yeah. I, I, you know. I don't know if they still do it, but when I was doing my VCE, it was the the thing that, you know, if you did arts or humanities, they were marked down and you got a bonus mark for doing maths or accounting, which what a like truly spectacular ideological, you know, notion that God forbid we have some students who are interested in literature and studio art applying to be doctors, you know. I think I think that the ranking system is corrupt um it's obviously geared towards students who come from schools with a lot of money um and you know they always say oh but it's it's merit and yes there are some students who manage to do extremely well even though their schools are underfunded and they don't have the resources of of richer kids but you know just look at the look at the like atar scores rankings they're always private schools and there might be one or two state schools that pretend they're private schools you know um so yeah i think i think that would be it that any sense of ranking would just go out the window and I also feel in a way, you know, a, a different type of sympathy, mm. but a different type of sympathy for the kids who were born into that system, mm. a system where, you know, they might end up like, you know, studying for four years and going to law school when they never really wanted to go to law school at all. I teach it, some of them. it was, right? <laughs> yeah. But that is what w- was expected because you went to a school that cost your parents $30,000 a year and they're not going to let you, you know, be a dental assistant oh, if you just if look, they spent 30,000 years you on know, it. If you know, if you teach a creative writing subject at university, yeah. um, they're often available as breadth subjects and you get quite a lot of students who would rather be doing something else, you know, and it's their two and a half hours of the week where they get to come and engage their creativity and they're often – 
you know, just have this untapped talent, which is which is so remarkable. And some of them have, you know, changed their path, which I've been really, really proud of. But yeah, I think that's a, it's a huge issue. I mean, even my dad, like, you know, he went to school to be an architect because it was kind of expected of him. And he had a very strict English father who was a um, an engineer and a, a scientist. And, um, you know, he was a singer, like he was in the wild cherries before they kicked him out and, and installed Lobby Lloyd. Um, I, I sort of think about, you know, how different his life would have been if he hadn't been forced into that. And so, yeah, I agree. I think it's um, it's a system that is not really helping anyone other than uh, the kind of, you know, extreme kind of 1% Australia Club members. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think that I think a lot of the, the people who are born into that don't – I mean, you know, we, we don't have class in Australia, Will. What? Like, class doesn't <laughs> exist here. Like, I think that's the thing. There's a lack of kind of critical thinking about class. We sort of pretend that we don't have it, and it's one of the things that we really inherited from England, I think, is 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 um, some really cooked ideas about class in Australia. And I guess that was something – that I sort of touch on a bit in the book, you know, we were just poor. Like we weren't work, working class. Mum and dad didn't work in factories, but we didn't have much money. And then we had some significant challenges. So I was very familiar with Centrelink, you know, from a very young age. Um, and it's it's not something that we, we sort of talk about much here. And I think, um, you know, I'm glad to see that it is becoming more of a, a kind of um, – more of the conversation is kind of focusing on these ideas of class and privilege and, you know, who gets to do what in Australia, I guess. Yeah, the conversations are happening more probably because the discrepancy between those things has never been greater. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, it is becoming very hard to ignore the elephant in the room when we are getting to those numbers worldwide of, you know, less than 100 people learning half the stuff and you see it manifested in Australia you know, daily now. It is hard. I think it is much harder for people to ignore the inherent privilege and you know disenfranchisement of certain people in our society oh it's a big thing for me you know being autistic it's like i am the the, the, the constant kind of like gnawing at the back of my head is i have a very limited skill set the skills that i do have are really good um but i know that i have tried and and failed or struggled you know to work in legitimate employment so there is always a part of me which is just thinking, I don't know what the future holds. Like, And so, you know, when we talk about first home buyers not being able to, I then think, well, what about autistic first home buyers or, you know, people with disabilities, people from, you know, this idea of the people who have got like, you know, 100000 in the bank and they're trying to buy a home, my heart bleeds. Like I, I, I only had savings. I've only had savings since I started teaching at university in 2017. Like... Um, my life was so chaotic uh, prior to that, I would get to zero every month or less than zero. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a wild thing to be watching unfold from the sidelines, kind of thinking, that must be nice, trying to buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm aware that we've been banging on for ages and I still have a bunch of questions to ask. I want to, before I get to my standard questions... Yeah, I want to ask about one more thing, if I could, mm-hmm. which is um, you lived in LA mm. for a, a bunch of time, as did I. Loved the city, had a great relationship with Los Angeles, like really enjoyed my time there. Um, but tell me about how entertainment, but particularly, like you said, you feel in a safe space at a Comic Con, like, mm-hmm. you know, like 
how did that world, the entertainment world, you know, and where was the importance of it to your world and which particular aspects of it became very important? I mean, obviously you mentioned already Galaxy Quest (laughs) as part of your life motto. So clearly with Comic-Con being mentioned, with Galaxy Quest being mentioned, and I've read the book and I understand the connection, that particularly that community and that part of the entertainment industry seems to have become a home and a safer space for you. Absolutely. It was something that I'd always been really interested to experience, I guess because I, I loved Galaxy Quest, which came out turn of the century. So I'd sort of was aware of this promised land of, you know, um, a place where you could dress up as a character that you liked and it wasn't weird. Um, so I guess when I moved to LA, <laughs> which looking back must have been terrifying for my parents, I kind of just went, well, my lease is up. I think I might move countries. Um, and I had like $800 in the bank. But I really found that the entertainment world and entertainment journalism in particular was such a natural fit for me because it kind of used all of these coping skills that I had employed to um, live, you know, to stay alive. I was suddenly able to use them um, in my work. So things like putting on the performance of, you know, being the erudite conversationalist, um, all of these kind of special interests, you know, focused uh, hours and hours and hours of, of research that I'd put into, you know, my favourite films and TV shows. Um, and even things like, you know, as an autistic person, I have often looked to other people, looked to famous people to kind of, you sort of model yourself on them. So you might borrow something that they say or, or a way that they are in the world. And it's often very literal. Like I, there are there are mannerisms, um, you know, that I have which are not innate. You know, they're things that I've like stolen from Barbara Streisand or, or E.T. Uh, like that's that's a big one. You know, there's some ways that E.T. like touches his face, which I do, and I know that's what I'm doing. So in doing entertainment journalism, I was suddenly able to kind of unleash all of these things as skills rather than as just weird things. Um, so the example that I give in the book is this interview that I did with Vin Diesel, which was, um, you know, it was a round table junket, like, it, they're not they're not the best kind of environment to do an interview. You're kind of sitting around a table with seven other people and you get, you know, 15 minutes. But I knew that Vin Diesel was a huge fan of Dungeons and Dragons, um, had played forever, you know, I, I likewise. Um, so I just basically was like, hmm, that's his special interest. I didn't know, you know, at the time, obviously, I didn't have the, the kind of language to describe it in those terms. But um, so, yeah, I just kind of swung straight for that and we had this really beautiful moment of, of connection. Um, so I think I think that LA was a really interesting time in my life because it was a time of renewal. You know, I had reached the limit of who I could be in Melbourne. I had kind of backed myself into a corner, I guess, and I'd, I'd, I'd sort of come out the other side of a couple of um, abusive relationships and was very traumatised and sort of just running on empty. And I think going to LA, I was able to just get some space and kind of reinvent myself. Well, not even. Actually, I think I think what was really special about it was it was a clean slate. So I didn't have that baggage of I used to be, you know, the grumpy re- music critic or I've dated everyone in Melbourne because I don't know how to say no to anyone. Like, um, you know, in LA, I could just be like, okay, who am I? Like, how do I want to present myself to the world? And so things like becoming more comfortable with my kind of, you know, very detailed special interests, um, starting to think about my sexuality in more con- concrete terms. Um, 
it, it, it kind of felt like a safe space to kind of explore that. And I guess because in a way, you know, that's what LA is. It's one of those cities where people come to uh, pursue their dreams. Um, and I think one of the other interesting things about LA is that a lot of people come there for a particular reason and sort of end up doing something else. And it, so it kind of happened that way for me. You know, I went there to essentially just to increase my likelihood of getting work because I knew that if I was there, we'd get more opportunities. And I was writing for a bunch of Fairfax publications at the time. But, you know, in in literally seeing movies getting made on the street, I was like, that's right. I really like screenwriting. That thing that I did in, you know, to kind of get through year 12 that I'd completely forgotten about. Um, so it was a real, it was a real kind of site of renewal, I think. And in a way also hilarious to say it, but, you know, Southern Californians are so nice and so polite that I had you know, the way I had constructed this persona for myself as an autistic person was based entirely on being a bitch, you know, like I was like a sassy music journalist and I loved all of the, you know, NME guys who were really mean and, you know, really just had kind of calcified. And so that combined with being, um, you know, really traumatized through, through abuse was like a very unpleasant person. Um, so I think it's funny. And so just quickly on that, like, and I mean, again, this is you know, vaguely confessional at my end and please only take it as a little um, uh, funny, funny story in retrospect. <laughs> Uh-oh. But, um, I remember back in the day before, you know, I kind of was aware of who you were. You wrote something incredibly scathing about a friend of mine. I can't even remember specifically what friend it was, but. I the the way that you went after them. Mm. I remember reading that article, and initially being so defensive of my friend. But and again, this might seem like revisionist history, but I just swear on whatever I need to swear on that this is true. I remember reading that article, and afterwards, kind of feeling a little for you, even though I didn't know you, because I was like, this. I don't think she's this mean. No. I can't imagine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but honestly, that was my – it was like you'd almost been challenged mm. to go, this person, be as mean as you possibly can about this person. And so my initial reaction was, this person does not deserve this level yeah. of this person being mean to them. But also I really, again, not knowing you at all, was like – I don't feel like this person is as mean as they are coming across in this article either. No, and looking back, I think that's one of the sort of devastating things for me is that I knew that underneath that was this very scared, confused, quite nice, I guess, you know, person who in in kind of building, you know, you know when I look back at it, it's funny because like for a long time, the first things I ever wrote, I was so embarrassed of them. But, in, I, you know, I go back and read them again. They're not very good, but they're so enthusiastic. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're really positive. And I think I I sort of felt like that was a bit frowned against, you know, in the Australian music criticism. And I think in music criticism in general. Mm-hmm. And it is hard. It's, it's a lot harder to write an engaging positive piece than it is, yes. um, you know, it's much funnier to write the, the slam. Um and yeah, so I think I think there were aspects of that persona which were um, I sort of felt like I couldn't escape, and I think it is it's probably very hard for people to to kind of wrap their heads around because um, I'm sure to many of the people whose bands I <laughs> slated, you know, they just think whatever you were just a bitch, and you know, to a certain extent I was, yeah. but but yeah, it was um, it was a 
kind of a, a, a it was really interesting writing the book to look back at that and to, to see to what extent that had been kind of constructed around me and encouraged, you know, because mm. then you, you get this persona, you become the kind of uncompromising critic, you know, people kind of play into it. You know, editors are like, will you review this band that we know you don't like? Um and so I think in, in... And when you don't have a language for, you mm. know, the conversation your brain is having, and you, you you speak a lot in the book about how often you just model yourself on yeah. what you think is, you know, normal for other people to do. You're taking a bit from, like, popular culture. You're taking a bit from other people. You're This is how, you know, someone reacts in this situation and I'm going to model myself on. I can imagine in that moment, without that language and framework, if a whole bunch of people are saying, you are this yeah, and we are rewarding you for this and giving you value for this and you have found a place where you fit in in this society by being this thing, that mm. that is a pretty – powerful message and it's only when you go to LA when you are able to step away from all this messaging around you that you can go well which bits of this are true and valuable to me and Mm. which bits of it are not true and unnecessary to me well one of the things that was really interesting in reading I I did a lot of research for the book and I I obviously read a lot about bullying of autistic kids because it was something that I experienced but but one of the sort of unspoken things is that because we lack certain kind of you know critical thinking around socialization the the danger often with autistic people too is that you read bad behavior as normal so so if people are bullying you you go okay that's how people interact with each other um and so you can even become something of a bully yourself and so i think i think there was probably a bit of that um in kind of that period of my life and sort of trying to find my voice was like, okay, this is what we all right. Yep. Okay. So you're a music critic, which means you have to be kind of uncompromising. Like, you know, I read Lester Bang's biography and was like, cool, got it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When of course, you know, I think the brilliant thing about Lester Bang's in retrospect was that, yes, he was very entertaining when he was, you know, slamming Lou Reed. But I think what, what was truly remarkable about him. And I think it's what comes across in almost famous, um, in, in Cameron Crowe's kind of memory of him is that he was also a big fan. You know, he was much more engaging, I think, writing about the things that he loved. Um, so yeah, with, with great apologies to all of the, um, bands that, (laughs) that had to die for me to learn that life, uh, that life lesson. Um, Look, there's, you know, I go back sometimes, I look at some of those old impress reviews and things and I just think, okay, that's a pretty good piece of writing. But, yeah, there was a lot of it which was just like, you know, there was a Kate Zabrano song called Yes. I'm sure you can imagine what the review was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think I, there was one uh, for, not, not one of yours, but in a similar vein, I imagined it was about uh, – uh, Hope Floats. There was a movie called mm. Hope Floats. I reckon it was Sandra Bullock. And I reckon the review was So Does Shit. And that's like a pretty mean review to like something that a whole bunch of people have spent some time on. But if you have seen the film, it's a pretty accurate review. Probably, <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, look, the good news is I, I, I did a couple of comedy festival shows with my brother and we we did get one like character assassination level negative reviews. So I was like, so this is what it sounds like when uh, Dubs yeah. cry. Okay. <laughs> what did it feel like when it was about you rather than you being the person Kind of it? incredible. I mean, I will say, I think it was much meaner than anything I ever wrote, which is saying something. Um, but yeah, it was it? Well, I did get to kind of look behind the curtain in Oz, so to speak. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, some standard questions I'd like to ask everybody. What do you think happens when we die, Clem? <gasps> oh... 
I I think that there is some sort of, you know, energy transference. Like I always really, I, I as a kid always found it quite moving when we would go to you know, country town and you see the old cemetery and there'd be the graves with the gravel on them. And I always thought mm-hmm. that must be so your ghost can get out. So you're not like stuck under the concrete slab. Uh-huh. And so I sort of think it's something like that. You know, I think, I think there is, uh, you know, I would broadly describe myself as agnostic. I was raised sort of as a half-hearted Catholic, but I don't, I don't, I don't know enough to be able to definitively say there's nothing, um, you know, but, but because where did the universe come from? I don't think it was God, but, you know, I think there's some sort of energy situation out there which we can't explain and I sort of feel like death maybe plays into that somehow. That big picture thought, is it one that you have a lot that you care about at all? Like, I mean, some people just are like, yes, there's huge mysteries of the universe, but... You know, I've got to go and pick the kids up from school or, I've got to, you know, whatever. Like, they don't really care so much about it. It doesn't overwhelm them. One of the things that constantly I think about is this idea of, you know, what is the meaning of life? Mm. What am I doing to give my life meaning as ridiculous as, as those concepts might be? And I, yeah, again, am somewhere between atheism and agnosticism. Mm. Like, you know, like, you know, I tend to suspect that we're probably, you know, an accident, a biological accident in the corner of the universe. But... I acknowledge that there is a universe and this universe mm. is spectacular and possibly filled with other life. So, therefore, what is this? What do you think we are in right now? In terms of a kind of epoch? Um, I don't know. I, 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 do you care? Yeah, I yeah, I think question. I do. do I think, and in a way, I think autistic people probably care too much. You know, yeah. I, I, I think in the book like oh god i've become one of those people in my book um but <laughs> well, one we're here it, to talk about your book yeah. but I, I, I am very pleased that we've also talked about a whole bunch of things that people can still go and read the book and there 90 percent of it will be yes. you know exciting and unique look i think no I, the only reason i said in the book is because i can't remember if i mentioned it or not but one of the things that that i i sort of struggled with um was this idea you know the common misconception is that autistic people lack empathy when I think the reality is actually the opposite. We almost have too much. Um, and so for me, it feels a bit like when Superman realizes he can kind of feel everybody's thoughts and hear all their, their kind of hopes and dreams and worries and things. It's, mm-hmm. it's a bit like that. So I do think about that stuff a lot. And, um, and it is, it's tricky because there are so many aspects of the, you know, the Anthropocene, which are so terrifying and awful and, you know, I, 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 I always, I'll see a headline, I'm like, don't read it, don't do it, don't read it, like it's going to ruin your day and then I read it and it's something about, you know, a, a, an animal going extinct or an awful, you know, ecological catastrophe facing, you know, disadvantaged people. Um, yeah, I I don't know and I think I think that's troubling but I guess I guess in the not knowing, I think that's why agnosticism is kind of comforting. It's like... It would be very easy to go, well, we're doomed, you know, fuck, set the controls for the heart of the sun. But but maybe we're not, you know. It does feel like we are at this kind of zenith where it could go one of many ways, maybe all of them at once. Um, one of the things that I was going to study uh, at, at, when I was thinking about doing a PhD was this idea of, you know, um, utopias and dystopias in science fiction and I'm very interested in, you know, the utopias because I actually think they're often much more sinister than the dystopias, but we never look, we never, we never examine that, you know, mm-hmm. like 
in Elysium. The series of the series of decisions that have to be made to construct a utopia. Yeah, there's a lot of you're like, hang on, where did all the homeless people go? Exactly in Elysium, <laughs> I was like, okay, so you're presenting this like fucked up future LA as like the worst nightmare, but then on Elysium, you've got you know Jodie Foster running the rich people UN, and you can't die and you can't get sick. What a nightmare! Like, right. so yeah, I, I I sort of do often think like, what is what what is the kind of ideal future? You know, I think young people today are are um, extraordinarily encouraging in their their switched onness. Um, and it's in, it, even you know, as a teacher of creative writing, I'm always interested to see what my students are writing because I think that kind of speaks to a bit of the kind of broader anxieties and things that they're going through. And I'm pleased to say this year there weren't many dystopian science fiction movies being written. So yeah, I think um, I think. There are some very small encouraging signs. You know, this corporate tax thing, which is which is in the news at the moment, like that could be a big deal. Like we would make so much money in Australia if we taxed those mega, you know, corporate entities who who exist here and don't pay a cent, you know, SO, IBM, Goldman Sachs. Like think of what we could do with the literal billions of money that they owe in tax. Like... Amazing. So, you know, yeah, if, if, if the G7 are saying let's do corporate tax, then maybe the knock-on effect will be eventually some form of kind of equity here. But, uh, I mean, I'm not holding my breath. Uh, do you um, – you can say yes or no to this question, like, very much. You can just not engage in it at all. Some, uh, and a lot of people don't like to engage in it, which is absolutely fine. Um, I, you have the opportunity to change one, one moment of your life with no, reper- <laughs> with no repercussions. You know, so no sort of back to the future style, you know, if you change this thing, everything else changes. You literally just get to change this moment, this instance, this thing that happened. Is there one that you would just like to to change? Mm. I'm tempted to say to never go online. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we take the computer back to the IBM store. <laughs> Um, no, I don't know. God, I often think about regrets, you know, because um, I think they're really important. I think I think without regrets, we don't change. Uh, and so there are things that I've done and said in my life that I do really regret. Some of them, um, as you noted, were, were printed. Um, but if they didn't happen, you know, I wouldn't be here now. So it's it's it, you do get into that real kind of like bong huffing second year philosophy lecture kind of mindset thinking about this stuff. But, yeah, I think about things like, had I known certain things or if I'd, you know, understood myself more, then maybe I would have finished my first degree at uni and, and I'd be in a very different place now. So so I think no. I think I, I don't know that there is anything I would change. You know, I can think of the kind of dinner party water cool of things that you I wish I'd said more to David Attenborough when I met him when I was nine, you know, but 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 I think I think in general no. I keep asking the question not because I've ever got a good answer, mostly because I'm <laughs> mostly because I'm interested that most people decide no mm. at the end. Yeah. And I think that's more interesting to me is the idea that we all have a range of regrets. Mm. But in a way, as you said, the regrets are often our biggest growth points or the reason that we are who we are now mm. is defined by the fact that we never want to make that mistake again. You know, yeah. literally changed our behavior in some way because we regret that thing happening and i think then there's a disconnect between how as a society we view people's mistakes Mm. 
you know, because we do tend to really judge people, particularly at the moment, like there is this sort of culture of, like, I mean, look, you can get into the woods on the argument of no yeah. one's really truly cancelled and, you know, their cancel culture has been weaponized by, you know, people to mean something completely different. But just in a general sense, there seems to be this appetite, particularly online, of like, mm. you made a mistake, therefore we're going to judge you as if we have never personally made a mistake right whereas for most of us when we get to the heart of it often it's our mistakes that were our biggest opportunities to Mm. develop into you know better people to learn from so i just wonder how do we get that into the conversation we have around people's mistakes how can we approach people when they make a mistake and when they fuck up with the spirit of you know what? You probably can't see it now, mm. but if you make the right decisions from this moment on, you'll actually look back on this, and someone will one day ask you, you know, can you change something about your life? And you'll end up saying no because you learnt so much yeah. from this moment. Well, I just don't feel like we take that into that conversation at the moment. It's really hard because I think of the times that I've really fucked up, and there's always been at least one person who, you know, sometimes more angrily than others, has said, "This is why what you said was wrong," you know, and mm. and go away and have a think about that. Um, and often the reaction, you know, it's a really difficult one for me, and I'm aware that I think these conversations are really fraught for autistic people because we are prone to really screw up, like. A fact of autism is saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, getting things wrong, you know, misreading situations. And so I think it is um, it's a challenging thing because a lot of us are aware that we will continue to possibly, you know, do say the wrong things. And oh, is that it? Like, are we doomed? Like, I mean, a friend of mine published a book last year and she said, I can't wait to get cancelled so I can just move to the country and become a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think there are sort of glimmers of hope. I I see in some of the kind of discourse online this idea that it is, you know, it's sort of carceral. It's like punishment, you know, and it doesn't, we know that punishment doesn't work. We know that the jail, you know, the prison system doesn't work. And essentially they're kind of all stemming from the same, the same mindset. And that's, that's really encouraging. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. It's, um, uh, I hope it changes. You know, I think three it's... more questions and we're done. All right. Uh, the book is called Late Bloomer. Uh, I do recommend uh, that people check it out. I very much enjoyed it. And Clem, uh, um, these are three questions uh, you can answer in whatever depth you would like to answer them in. The first one is this: uh, on my desk, I it's as close as I have to an inspirational saying, which mm-hmm. is it just says, "What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail?" And the way that I like to interpret that is the idea that success for this project or this thing whatever it is is locked in Mm. what is the thing that you would love to be doing that is super successful having a child (laughs) i don't know i you know it was really funny because when you started to ask that question i immediately went um you know, best decorated cake at the Royal Melbourne show. Right. Um, but <laughs> well, that's good. That would be all right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 39. Like, I just turned 39. I'm autistic. I know that the odds are stacked against me. I'm reading a very scary book about donor insemination at the moment. So I, there, there is, there's a part of me which is like, is that something which is just not available to me at this point in my life? And um, it's a, it's a hard one because I think I was so scared of having kids my whole twenties for reasons that I think I understand now more with that clarity post-diagnosis that, you know, I was like, no, no, I never want kids. No, thank you. You know, I remember my editor at the age at the time, 
um, getting me to write something around my 30th birthday about never wanting to have kids. And she was like, you know, Clem, I wrote a very similar piece and I love my daughter. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a, there is a part of me which is like, oh, I, have I missed, you know, has that window closed? But, um, yeah, I didn't even understand myself until a couple of years ago. I'm sort of still working that out. So, yeah, I think, I think um, parenting is the big kind of mystery for me and I'd like to do it. You know, I think I'm at a point where if I didn't, it would be bittersweet. I don't think my life would be without meaning. But, yeah, you know, that's that's a big one for me, I think. And I am aware that, you know, IVF agencies are starting to screen out donors who are autistic or have autistic family members. So there is this kind of velvet eugenics, which is like bubbling in the background mm. of, of uh, you know, the, the big one is Down syndrome, like the, the chromosomal, the genetic screening for that. But, um, you know, there was a big piece in The Atlantic and the journalist said that the number one thing that people ask for in, um, in you know, IUI or, or IVF is to be screened for is autism. And that's the technology doesn't exist, but it's, it's you know, possibly on the way. So, so yeah, for me as an autistic person, I, I feel very strongly about, you know, bringing more autis- potentially autistic people into the world. Um, but whether or not, you know, I get to do that or if I just kind of make things better for the ones who do come along is the big question, I guess. You reference uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours in the book. Um, I have a question that is similar, is along those lines, which is you wake up one day and your 10,000 hours have been done in your sleep. You, you, you now have a brand new skill, but you haven't had to put the work in. You just wake up with that skill. What, what is the skill that you would love to have? Mm. <laughs> other than to be able to drive a car. Um, God. I think actually for me, you know, a really big one is is not rushing in. You know, I um, there's a sort of, I think, a kind of intersection between autism and being having uh, labelled as, having been labelled as gifted at school that, that the combination of those, like giftedness is inherently, like that's, it's a very fraught, area and it's it's actually something I'm interested in writing about in the future um, because in labelling children as gifted, you kind of rob them of the ability to have um, mm-hmm. work ethics, you know. So, so anything that you're not innately gifted at, you're just bad mm-hmm. at, you know, so it really screws you up. So I think that I think that the intersection of that and autism for me meant that I feel until very recently felt like I had to have an answer for everything, you know. Um, and one thing I really admired, I was reading – you know, the interview at the back of The Good Weekend that Ben Law does and it was he'd done one with Casey Donovan and, and um, one, of the, one of the topics was politics. And I can't remember what the question was, but she just said, oh, I don't know enough about that to answer that question. And I just was, I was like, wow, that's the best thing I've ever read, <laughs> you know, because that's not, I've gotten myself into a lot of sticky situations by feeling like I have to know something about everything so powerful though isn't it yeah i mean the world would be a better place if not knowing imagine like was like something that we were just all more comfortable with and i try Mm. to now call out if i don't understand what's but the amount of times sometimes for me it manifests itself in like you know they'll be like you know gary he was doing blah 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 oh yeah yeah yeah, gary (laughs) and uh, and like (laughs) rather than just go no who's gary no gary can you explain to me who gary is and now i'm like in this conversation like i've gone along with people like not that mistaking me for someone else yeah just because i think it would be embarrassing to tell them that i'm not that person and i'm like what is that 
What is there a part of me that just says like, I, I just, I try to be one of those people who more often says, I don't know what you're talking about or I don't have enough information to yeah. have an opinion on that. I'm trying to, doing the PhD has been real, really good because of course, you know, as somebody who never actually graduated from university until I got my master's, I don't have that, you know, I, I sort of entered the the academy at ground floor so and I really noticed that the first six months or so I'd be like yep oh yep yeah affect theory yep yep sure you know uh uh-huh yeah (laughs) you know like what my eye car city eyes and so now I'm I it's so hard for me it's like I choke on the words but I'll say to my supervisor actually no I don't know that or no I haven't read that book you know so for jack shit, like I had, I, I was an autistic person who who struggled at school and and dropped out of uni three times. Like, there's a lot of stuff I haven't read. So this idea that I was sort of carrying on like I knew a bit of everything was just, I think a, you know, desperate coping mechanism. But yeah, so I final, think, I think that's it. Final, final question. Thank you very much for this. This has been great fun. Uh, I've really appreciated it. And uh, uh, I have a time machine. Uh, I can take you on a trip, round trip, to the future, to the past, as far back as you want to go, as far forward as you, you know, think there'll still be something around to have a look at. Um, you no, know, you don't have to do anything on behalf of humanity. There's no <laughs> having to go back and kill baby Hitler or anything like this. It's purely, purely as a reward for doing the podcast. You just get a trip to wherever in time that you would like to go and have a look at. Where would you like to go? Do you know, I did my master's in, uh, I wrote a TV sitcom set in the 14th century because um, in my, in retrospect, very autistic research process, I discovered that at that time in England, people really like the height of humour was like basically jackass, like like very very violent practical jokes. Right. Um, so that was my inspiration. So I'd love to go back then and just like see people like breaking each other's legs and just pissing themselves <laughs> laughing about it. <laughs> I think it was King Edward. He had a, he had this guy who worked for him who had what we would now understand to be I don't know like a middle ear infection or something, and he was like couldn't, right. falling over and couldn't stand up, and everyone was just like, "This is the." funniest thing I've ever seen in my life like gave him a promotion (laughs) so that's where we're going Will it smells like shit we'll probably die before we get back into the time machine but uh, yeah 14th century England sounds like a real riot to me I mean good answer this has been really fun thank you so much for doing the show oh thank you for having me 